I'm Therese Couture, and this is the Embodied Black Girl Podcast, a podcast about decolonizing our imagination, envisioning a new earth, and getting free together. Hello, beloveds. I am so happy that you're here, and we're back for episode two of the podcast. And today we have a very special guest and I'm truly, truly honored to have this person here with us today. She is absolutely brilliant. And we actually recorded this episode back in 2020. And I was just listening to it and I'm like, wow, this conversation is such a blessing in so many ways. The wisdom that has been shared in this conversation, and I know that it's going to bless you as much as it's blessed me. So if you haven't heard of or met Dr. Mullen, um, her pronouns are she, her, and Dr. Jennifer Mullen creates spaces for people and organizations to heal. She believes that it is essential to create dialogue to address how mental health is deeply affected by systemic inequities, and the trauma of oppression, particularly the well-being of queer, indigenous, black, brown people of color. Dr. Mullen has earned her doctorate of psychology in clinical psychology from the California Institute of Integral Studies, a master's in counseling and community agencies from New York University's Steinhardt School of Education, and her Bachelor's of Arts in Psychology and Elementary Education from New Jersey City University. She notes that her dissertation, Slavery and the Intergenerational Transmission of Trauma in Inner City African American Male Youth from the Cotton Fields to the Concrete Jungle, has been the primary foundation for the current work in furthering emotional wellness on a larger collective scale for communities of color. So she is so well versed, and I'm so happy for you to listen to this conversation. Welcome, 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 Jennifer. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me here, Therese. I'm so, so grateful to be here. Thank you for the invite and thank you, fellow New Jersey. (laughs) Thank you for saying yes. I'm so excited about our conversation. So 
let's just dive in. Can you share? I know I shared a little bit about your work. Can you just share a little bit about your identities and how you're approaching this work of decolonization of therapy and more? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I identify as a Black woman. Um, my roots um, go back into Panama. Um, so in technicality, I guess, if you want to split hairs, um, I'm a Black Latinx woman. Um, again, like as you said, my pronouns are she and hers. Um, I am also uh, queer identified. I identify as fluid. Um, in a lot of aspects, but particularly my sexual orientation. Um, I grew up in the inner city um, and uh, center city, I would say, of Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, and part of my experience in growing up um, in Jersey City was like the true meaning of diversity, <laughs> right? Like, you know, I grew up with one of my best friends being Polish and um, my other good friend being South Asian, and then another bestie was Filipina, and the other bestie was uh, Dominican and Haitian. And, and, and we just, it, I really didn't think a whole lot about my identity unless it was in regards to my dad, who's white, right? Um, so when people would say like, where did you get the last name Mullen from? Um, I'd be like, oh, that's my dad. Or they would try to say Mulan or Muyan. <laughs> <laughs> anything, anything other than like Mullen or I would walk into spaces and they'd be like, hi, we're, you know, we're waiting for Jennifer Mullen. She's the first year student rep. And I'm like, yeah, you're looking at her. Like, oh, like, I'm sorry. And then one day I, I asked the dean, who did you expect me to be? Or what did you expect my name to be? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe destiny or precious. Oh, wow. Him, like, right. Right. That wasn't even a microaggression. It was a micro assault. Mm. Um, and that was in grad school. So um, not surprising, but it just took me by some, some loops. So I bring this up to say that um, my identity is a large part of this work. Um, I also, part of my Panamanian roots is that my grandparents, uh, well, one of them anyway, um, has very indigenous lineage. Um, my uh, abuela, my grandmother, who is now passed, um, literally was on horseback riding bare, naked, naked, <laughs> on horse at 16 years old. You know, we're talking like in the jungle, like she was um, San Blas Cuna Indian and is, you know, still. So I don't think I really realized that and paid attention to it, even when I had to go to Panama and had some like rites of passage and uh, some kind of growing into adulthood ceremonies. I was so damn Americanized, I'm quoting here, like air quotes, um, that I didn't really appreciate it right mm -hmm. <laughs> i didn't i didn't they just called me a gringa which is like a little white girl because i just i didn't really really start to come into lots of different identities probably until my 20s um and then it was then uh, you know where i got into therapy and psychology into a peer education group in college where i was dealing with feelings in groups it was a bunch of inner city kids uh, led by a white gay psychologist who had us like talking about our stuff, you know, and that started my love affair with emotions, with deep, intense emotions, um, because I had a lot of them. You know, my family life was um, up and down. 
it, it could be chaotic at times with a beautiful mask of perfection around it. Um, how I felt about myself was definitely usually down in the dumps and um, I didn't really think too well of myself. Um, and, and that imposter syndrome is still like, it still messes with me. But as I, as I moved to California, I started to realize um, that there were other aspects that were part of me that I wished away, like um, my deep spiritual knowing with a capital K, um, my ability to communicate in other ways and know things about people that you know, I shouldn't know, so to speak. Um, and I started really reconnecting and understanding and rooting my own anti-blackness because even though my mother is Panamanian and does not pass in any way, shape or form and uh, very dark skinned family members, um, we're of all multiple colors of the rainbow, but my mother still had a lot of internalized and can still, you know, even though she's learning and growing with me, um, she could still have a lot of internalized anti-blackness, you know? So a lot of that was my work when I lived in California and I had amazing sister friends um, who were, you know, El Salvadoreño or Mexicano, African-American. And those were the crux of the people that were holding me down. And I learned so much about myself and I humbled myself so much. Um, and I did some spirit work and truly, I think that and the work that I was doing here now at the university in which I work in Jersey City and the retreats I do with those students, um, that is where I think decolonizing therapy started to be birthed. Because to be honest with you, decolonizing therapy is a mix of that ancestral intergenerational trauma work uh, which involves spirit and the political. It is a mixture also of group work. And it is also a mixture of um, really, <laughs> you know, I'm like laughing in my head because it's always coming together in different ways. It's still growing, you know, what, what it is and what it isn't. But it's also a part of like anti-racist work and anti-imperialist work. Like, um, you know, really like trying to smash white supremacy and really looking at how, wait a minute, I'm over here working, quote unquote, treating people and working with these students that are barely at the poverty line. Um, and they have a multitude of various issues, but the primary being trauma. And yet here we are sort of demonizing them and making them feel like there's something wrong with them rather than helping educate them a little bit more about how they're raised in this system and how some of what they're carrying ancestrally is not even theirs and that they're not alone in this. Um, and so I feel like it's a different frame of mind. So, I mean, there's so many people that I could send a shout out to that um, have supported this work and are the reason why decolonizing therapy has been birthed. You know, this is not a, oh, a Jennifer Mullen thing by no way. I am on the shoulders and the backs of not only my ancestors, but every teacher that I've ever had. And I don't mean like teacher, like professor, like, I mean, everybody that has taught me from like exes <laughs> to, you know, like family members I've had issues with, to students that struggle with me, to, you know, everybody, just people that I pass in the subway to yeah, to the people that I serve, everybody has contributed to this. And so for me, decolonizing therapy is about unpacking and unlearning and unfucking ourselves <laughs> <laughs> from, 
from um sorry no that's okay from um multiple layers of systemic oppression multiple layers of systemic pain and trauma and unresolved grief um it is the unpacking of who we were and who we are to, to who we're becoming um it is also um, an expansion and a and a kind of middle finger to just traditional psychotherapy and don't get me wrong uh, traditional psychotherapy is very important and for a lot of people it is where they need to be and um, I still practice it and it, it's still very important however doing this work again like I just said with people who um, are historically marginalized primarily they're my primary clients I realized that just doing talk therapy wasn't enough and not bringing parts of myself into this room and them getting to know me from my Myra Briggs type, if that's what they need to know, <laughs> to, you know, what is my rising sign and my moon? True story. You know, I have like youth coming in like, uh, you're not an Aries moon, are you? And I'm like, no, why? <laughs> They're like, okay, because I, I can't fuck with that. I just want to make sure you're cool. I just want to make sure I can deal with you. Like, I'm like, what if I was? I don't know. I like your energy, but, you know. So it's funny, but like the youth teach me so much. You know, they teach me so much. So, um, yeah, decolonizing therapy is 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 our therapy. Is asking the people on the bottom that don't even have the money for the services, asking the people that are still unsure if they want to receive help what do you need? What do you need? How can we provide this to you? At what rate do you need it? And what would this look like? And how can I help you unpack this? So um, that's a little bit. <laughs> that's a little bit of a lot. Yeah, thank you for sharing all that. And as you were talking um, about, you know, uh, just therapy in the traditional setting, Pretty much, I would say 90%, and I'm being um, probably conservative, of my family works in the medical industry in some way, shape, or form, um, whether they're doctors or nurses, but they all work in the medical industry. And also, I grew up in a family of people who are healers. So it was, I always saw it wasn't just what Western books taught us, but it was really the foundation was always what was ancestrally taught, what was passed down, and and that medicine was still catching up to what our family and our lineage knew ancestrally. And um, we we're even though everyone worked in the industry because they needed to make a living somehow, <laughs> um, it was always seen to, okay, take everything that's said to you as a grain of salt because they don't know, literally, Western medicine. They don't really know everything that they're talking about. And so much of it is about pathologizing, especially people of color, Black people, Indigenous people, and folks of color. It's always about pathologizing and, and labeling so that they can control a certain narrative or put out a certain narrative about 
about those individuals because it's always pushing the agenda of, you know, capitalism, pushing the agenda of, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, and therefore anyone who rises above or who wants to dismantle those systems in order to keep them in check, there needs to be that pathology. Yes, yes, yes. So I love that you combine not only, you know, you combine it all. It's not just one or the other. And um, as you were talking, what came up was what was there any specific moment that you knew that your work just couldn't stay in the traditional Western medicine route that you needed to incorporate, um, you know, the ancestral and all that you do? Oh, I love that question. I don't think I've ever been asked that question and I really love it Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, because it's like making me just sort of slow down for a second and feel that out. I would say um, for me, it's a two-parter. I feel like um, with all respect to my queer community, um, I was in the closet. for a long time when it came to my spirituality and the way that I was living my life, meaning walking in a path with my ancestors, my team, my guide, you know, um, doing shamanism work, um, you know, santeria, spiritualismo, like a lot of my work um, came from a knowing, if that makes sense you know, like a knowing for a long time. And people would say, you're just naturally gifted at being a therapist. And I would feel a little guilty because I feel that part of it is that I naturally know how to Mm. tune into people. It's like being an empath, right? And being highly sensitive. And so it's like, okay, am I a good therapist? Or is it that I'm just constantly picking up on what people are like, that is in their field, Uh, you know? Um, And I think it's both. I don't think, but I used to have this question, you know, in my mind. And and then I would wonder why I would come home heavy and dragging and tired. And some days I still do, even though I'm much better, much better at protecting myself and clearing myself, but still, it, it still comes up for me. But I would say I was in quote unquote, the closet spiritually, um, probably for the last 10 years where I would sit with someone and when I get quiet enough and I'm with them, I can feel Mm. them very, very deeply. Um, And again, with the knowing of things, I don't mean that in an egoic way. It's just sort of like, oh, I I know this. And so sometimes a therapist, that would be really hard (laughs) to not just say, oh, you need to do this. Like, Because that's not appropriate, right? Um, But I started feeling like, as I learned, that there were ways for me to have these conversations without just saying to someone, do this or do that. Don't do this and do that. Like, I I started feeling as though there are ways to say, hey, what would it be like if 
you let this go and you actually stepped into this. Or if you started to let your mother know that her words are really starting to affect your little brother and not just you, or, you know, instead of just saying, this is what you need to do and you need to tell your mother, blah, 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 even though that's what I'm hearing really loud behind me, you know, um, I started finding ways to say things. And then I started realizing even in a university setting, students would come in and they did, you know, I saw something last night, Dr. Mullen, but I'm not crazy. And I would look at them and nod my head and they're like, but I'm not crazy, yo. And I'm like, uh-huh, you know, I'm like, no, I don't think that you're, that you're crazy. And we don't like that word in here. You know, we don't do crazy unless we doing crazy. And then they would laugh, you know, like, um, but yeah, I, I think the moment was on retreat with probably like 20 of my peer educator students. Um, and they are the first ones, um, like they're my family, we become family. And I think they're the first ones that help me see that even as a group facilitator and as a healer, um, I could be both and that I could let parts of myself in, that we could continue to have relationship even outside of them graduating college, that they're grown ass adults and they get to decide who they wanna have relationships with, you know? Um, and we were on retreat. I do one retreat a semester with them and uh, I started allowing myself to do meditations on the beach. And a lot of them have never even been to the beach before outside of Hudson County or Essex County in New Jersey. And, you know, we were at the beach all weekend long, no phones allowed, them working on their stuff very deeply, rage, inner child, family trauma, abuse, uh, you name it, you name it, body image. And I let myself do a meditation on the beach with them. And I started channeling after the meditation. I started, and I don't remember any of it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I, to this day, like they'll laugh and they'll be like, Jed, you remember when you told me blah, 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 blah? I'm like, I do not. Cause that will, they're like, cause that wasn't you, right? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what it was. So um, I think that on these retreats, I just, they, I felt their love so much and they, I love them so much. And um, I, I was at the ocean, which is my place. You know, my, my sun sign is cancer and I can live by the ocean. I'm just so happy in, in the water. And I think that it was like the perfect setup. So in that moment, I was scared and I thought, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, right? Because that is the way that the mental mm, health industrial yes. complex has colonized us, right? That's part of their, their educational, emotional colonization is, you know, you can't have any spiritual stuff in it. You can't talk too much about yourself. You can't get too attached, quote unquote, to the people you're working with. Um, but I started getting more and more angry as I started realizing that this is the work that I wanted to do all the time. And the more that I started gently letting little openings happen, not like that, not like full out channeling with one-to-one -one clients, but letting little bits of it come out and say, hey, I'm just wondering, da -da 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 -da, and just giving them some feedback. And I would see how emotional they would become. Um, for me, that is when everything started changing. When I started realizing I don't want to hide anymore, that my ancestors don't want me to hide, that we've been hiding for <laughs> thousands and that's like so long we've been hiding our blackness we've been hiding our indigenousness we have been hiding our natural gifts we have been hiding behind even um, the things that we self-medicate with because this world can't handle our big ass 
loving, healing, raging, pulsating energy. So the more that I started accepting all of my bigness, um, and I'm not there yet, <laughs> I'm still shrinking. Like even now while I'm talking to you, I'm feeling myself like, oh, you're sharing too much. It's too big. I just have to take that breath, recenter myself and be like, no, this question was asked for a reason. It's perfectly for you, <laughs> you know, and other people, you know, and other people need to hear this. And that's what I feel like I'm doing is saying like psychology, therapy, social work, you know, counseling, mental health, like we are oppressing our people. Like I want to shake somebody, you know, like we are oppressing the very people that we say that we're serving, the very communities we come from, we're gatekeeping and telling people how they should have relationships with each other. Um, it's bad enough they have to come into a room and maybe even pay for healing um, that was caused mm. by systems, right? So, it's, you know, so for me, I just really have been thinking um, or had been thinking that I'm done, that I'm done hiding. And every day I feel like I'm coming out a little bit more. Um, at, at the job today, I was on a panel and I let myself be myself. And that was the first time in a long time that I wasn't sitting there saying, yes, absolutely. A way that I would be a wild woman and, then, and whatever it was, like I could have very, you know, like I could have very easily like put on what they needed. And instead I just kept it real. You know, I kept it real in front of colleagues, in front of my supervisor. I talked about decolonizing therapy. Um, so today was a coming out moment for me. And I shook afterwards. You know, I had to excuse myself. I went upstairs. It was like 20 minutes before I had a client. I probably could have stayed a little later, but I had to go because Jennifer needed to like reground herself, kind of root into the earth. And I needed to like talk to my people. And then wouldn't you know, uh, an amazing sister friend that I made in IG, um, Ebony Janice, she is right now like uh, doing... Uh, and she's an instructor for women and gender studies and she happened to pass by and she told me exactly what I needed to hear without me knowing that I needed to hear it. And then I took a breath mm. and I saw some clients. <laughs> so I say all of this to say that I feel like I'm still, still having that process and being on that retreat and bringing so much healing to those young adults they give me so much healing as well. And they don't even realize how much they have helped me step into who I am. Um, they have allowed me to mother, you know, I, I don't have my own uh, biological children and I, and I don't believe I will, but I have mothered many. Um, so they're actually the first ones who have asked me to start decolonizing therapy. They're like, we think it's time that you give the world what you've been giving us for 10 years. And we think it's time, Jen, we'd like to see you step into your power. Like this school is, you're too big for it. You know, like you're outgrowing it. And ah, so, yeah, that's, I hope I answered your question. Am I really long gone that way? <laughs> no, it's amazing. And, you know, everything that you said about stopping to hide, I just, you know, I relate to it so much because it's a lifelong journey because really when we look at the historical in the historical lens is that black people folks of color indigenous people in order to survive our ancestors had to hide 
And they had to sometimes hide physically. And sometimes they had to just hide different parts of themselves. They had to hide what they were truly thinking and feeling. They had to, you know, hide, be small, right? They had to be small in order to survive. And a lot of that is passed on, right? Is passed on because, okay, you ha- in order to survive, you have to be small in order to stay safe. You can't travel outside of, okay, this is the box and you can't go past that box. So for, for us, I just feel like it's within our DNA, our ancestry that we have to literally break out of it and take up more space. It's really about taking up more space because we haven't been taking up space. We have been told that we're not allowed to take space. And even now it's not safe to take up space. Um, Just a few weeks ago, I had, um, I led a, a global virtual gathering for black women and folks of color. And it was just, okay, this is going to be a small little thing. And then what ended up happening was like thousands of people signed on. And, and so it was like, oh, wow. Okay. This is bigger than what I'm even thinking it's going to be. And then with all those people signing on, I started receiving racist messages. (laughs) Of people literally being like, how dare you? How could you? You shouldn't be doing this. This is racist. Wow. And in that moment, Mm. I literally felt myself like, okay, the tendency is to shrink. But I felt it in that same moment. I was like, no, I'm taking up this space. This is my space to take. And I literally said to one woman, it's Black History Month and we're not doing this. Like, I am not going to do this emotional labor for you. And I am muting this conversation. Like, I had to have really strong boundaries. Mm -hmm. But whenever we take up more space, we're constantly receiving a pushback from people who are uncomfortable with with us taking up space mainly you know people in the dominant culture white folks yes and i want to circle back just a little bit because before we started we hit record we were talking about the word decolonizing (laughs) the word decolonize and how that word has been appropriated and misused so can you just talk a little bit about that? Absolutely, yes. Um, I think that decolonize in general, um, colonization gets way overused, right? Um, down to uh, educational forums, to uh, try to use it as a synonym for inclusivity and equity and social justice and truly, Um, The act of decolonization is anything but that. Um, So as I was telling you earlier, I'm even um, very, very reverent and cautious and loving in the use of the word decolonization. Um, I make sure that I leave space to explain it, um, that I talk about uh, the settler state 
that I talk about Turtle Island, that I, if I'm in Canada, then I'm talking about um, the nation and the people where we are um, and do some honoring and legit honoring, not just, oh, I'm, you know, creating some space and land acknowledgement, but really taking space, reaching out to the people before I get there, almost asking for permission, um, as well as ancestrally and spiritually asking for permission. Um, so for me, I think that a lot of people take the word of decolonization as just sort of, we're going to undo racism. No, then yes, use let's undo racism. <laughs> or uh, decolonization is like anti-imperialism. No, that might be a part of it. That's not all of it. Um, you know, so for me, decolonization is the undoing and the taking back emotionally, spiritually, energetically, as well as physically um, our natural ancestral ways. Um, and that could be from our dance to the way that we do relationship, the way that we barter or how we handle foreign finances, um, as well as the way that we view therapy. You know, and I, even in, in my decolonizing therapy, quote unquote, work, it's coaching because I, at this time, I'm refusing to do mainstream therapy because I do not feel that it is in line with truly decolonization. Um, and that is just my humble opinion. We can politicize our therapy and I, I can definitely talk about that and I do that. But um, I think in decolonizing, I mean, does therapy even exist? <laughs> it would just, you know, mm. it, it's an exchange. It's, 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 it's an exchange. And I think that that is why this whole one-sided, I'm giving you something and I'm serving you and you're not giving me something or you're just paying me financially. Something about that doesn't completely feel right. And I'm not saying that I have a perfect other solution as of or, or the collective does because I'm not alone in this. You know, I have a, a group of people that continue to support me throughout this process. Um, but what I am saying is, I think that the, the further that we decolonize is almost, almost like steps, like a spiral staircase, the more that it will open up and show us what we need to see, the more that we will receive messages letting us know the next steps we have to take. I believe that we're re-envisioning a new world. And to be honest with you, half the time, when I first started decolonizing therapy, I was just clear that this is what I was supposed to talk about and do. And that I had been doing this for lifetimes. But now I was trying to give it words. And when I, when I first wrote decolonizing therapy, I, I don't think that a lot of people were using the term decolonizing. Um, I don't think so. Or, or I wasn't following those people. If they were, um, I remember reading Tuck and Yang's article, Decolonization is Not a Metaphor. And I remember thinking, yes, I do not want to use decoloniza decolonization as a metaphor yet, aren't I? And then I talked to some friends that are organizers. I mean, like hardcore organizers. And they're like, no, we're, we're, we're taking it back. You know, like you're talking about emotional decolonization, which is part of the process of how we have been stripped down and made to feel less than and gaslighted. And, you know, we have been emotionally colonized as well. Like we're undoing these psychological um, chains of slavery, of um, you know, trail of tears of, of these residential camps of internment camps of what we're dealing with now down in Texas and at the border. Um, I feel like we're still trying to work this out on a collective level. So to be honest with you, 
when I hear somebody talk about decolonization, and this goes for myself too, <laughs> you know, I'm always asking myself, okay, what is this about? You know, what do they really mean? Are they, are they really truly talking about a community and a collective? Because I don't believe that we can quote unquote decolonize by ourselves. It isn't an individual thing. It is doing it in community. It is being conscious of the ways that we move with one another. It is, is conscious of whether or not we offer sliding skills. Um, and if we say we're not, is it just because we wanna maintain our $400 or whatever much it costs $600 a month BMW payment, like, you know, that, that, that is not collectivistic. That is really quite capitalistic and individualistic. And I'm not shaming anybody for that. I'm just saying um, that isn't part of decolonization. We need to honor our privilege if that's the case. So um, yeah, I think it's important that we continue to look at land and we continue to look at our indigenous brothers and sisters when we talk about decolonization. Um, and I also believe uh, that we're really, really oftentimes do not look at the psychological ramifications of colonization. And that is part of my purpose is to help educate and emancipate one uh, ourselves um, so that we can look a little further at like the effects of colonization and how they continue to plague so many of us emotionally and energetically. I, I don't anticipate anybody that I work with to stay in the pain and say like, oh, I've been colonized and this is why I'm going <laughs> through this stress and this pain. No, but it's, wait a minute, all of this is not mine. <sighs> Deep breath, you know? Okay, how much of this is mine right now in this moment? Where in my body am I feeling this trigger? Um, where can I release some of this violence? Is the violence coming at me psychological? Is it energetic? Is it physical? Is it all of the above? Um, and, and so I think that's what it looks like is slowly and gently detangling ourselves from Eurocentricity and from um, ways of being and thinking about each other and time and even love and, bear, and ha raising children in ways that are extremely Eurocentric. I think it's time that we reclaim that all back. I think it's time. And <laughs> you said one of my favorite words, <laughs> reclaim, because um, a big heart, the heart of my work is about reclamation mm -hmm. and remembering. And to me, I think that we can't really have that conversation of reclamation and remembering without talking about and tackling decolonization. Mm -hmm. And on the same side, I have seen and I have heard um, many people in the dominant culture, white folks, wrestling with what does decolonization, what is decolonization for white people? Um, and is it different than it is for brown folks? Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to hear your take on that, if you have one. Yeah, yeah. Um... I really do feel that decolonization um, is definitely about the land and sovereignty for our indigenous brothers and sisters. And also, I do not believe that people that have been forcibly brought here, you know, um, like enslaved Africans or any one of the African diaspora, I do not believe that we are also settlers. 
Um, no, no. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's part of my, like my belief. I, I hope I'm answering your question or maybe. I yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, I feel that there is a solidarity there and definitely, uh, many of our, you know, black, brown brothers and sisters see a deep sense of like our indigenous brothers and sisters deserving to receive the land back of Turtle Island, you know, of, of what is now known as the United States of America, you know, it's a very violent land that continues to not acknowledge um, the trauma that it has caused so much of the people that do the labor in this world. Um, and so, yeah, first, a lot of the like Latinx or um, our Asian brothers and sisters or South Asian, I think that it's very interesting and complicated for each of us. You know, I think that everybody has their own um, level of relationship to the land and to colonization. And like, for example, when I look at Panama, massive colonization has occurred, right? like massive all throughout Central America. Army bases have been put down in the name of, quote unquote, keeping us safe, when in fact it was really to pillage and to pull out all of our resources, all of our rich minerals with the Philippines, that continues to still happen. So when I, when I speak about forced migration, that comes from my Filipino peoples. You know, they, they talk a lot about forced migration where we believe that we want to migrate, but really we are forced to migrate because there's no more resources because the colonizers have come in and sapped them all up. So when we talk about colonization, I feel like it is um, definitely different for everybody in everybody's land and everybody's places across this multiverse, across this world. Um, but when it comes to America, um, I definitely defer to a lot of our um, Native American, First Nations individuals and to what they uh, need and want. And I think that um, it would be a lot of equity for many, many of us um, that have been forced to be here, um, whether through migration or through um, slavery. Yeah, I mean, as you're talking, I'm like, well, colonization hasn't ended. And so many people view colonization as like, oh, it's something that has ended. It's just simply transformed into different systems. But colonization hasn't ended, just like what you just said, all over, you know, South America, Central America are these army bases, the military bases that have been built out of quote unquote protection, but it's really anything but protection. And I mean, it just makes me so, so angry. And in the same way, like I hear people uh, talking about colonization and then they're like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, buy land in Panama (laughs) (laughs) or I'm going to go buy land in Costa Rica. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Weren't you just talking about decolonizing? Right. And here you are going to buy land in in a place where the power dynamics are not equitable, like there, it's not equal. Like you're going there with, you know, American dollar or, or euros or, you know, the pound to buy up the land and you're actually continuing the process of colonization. Yes. So yes. I really want to point that out. Like the, you know, there's a certain level of like, and I think everyone is hypocrisy, but everyone is doing the best that they can. Yeah. However, people who are, you know, in this country going and buying land in foreign places, yeah. that's colonization. 
Absolutely. That's how it's looking today. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and our governments continue to perpetuate it, right, as well. Like, 500, like colonization is more than 500 years, but 500 years and counting of land dispossession, enslavement, material and resource extraction. Like, ooh, like when you want to talk about thieving and who should be locked up, right? <laughs> you know, this, this it's, it is the ultimate form of gaslighting, making us all feel that we're wrong for trying to scrape by and make things work. When you're, when you're incarcerating a mother of three, you know, with a disabled partner at home for, for taking bread, <laughs> you know, um, and locking her up for ten, like 10, 11 years because she doesn't have appropriate legal aid, that is criminal. That is criminal. And we're not looking at where is that coming from? People are literally starving, literally. Um, and, and, and again, the colonization still plays out in the European ways of superiority, right? Mm -hmm. European ways of knowledge that we still, consciously or not, still feel are superior, right? And it spreads to all institutions, schools. This is where the power is then located. Um, and as much as we want to try to eliminate that power, almost many ways, almost all of our ways of knowing solely embrace Eurocentrism. And we're, so we're not in a post-colonial society. And, you know, whoever talks about post-colonialism, it, it's, it's, I do not believe that that is true. Um, and of course, with it, the cis-heteropatriarchy plays out. Um, lots of privilege plays out. Um, but yeah, yeah, I could keep going on and on and on. I'm just, <laughs> I'm trying to, to not keep going on and on. But yeah, colonialism and colonization, it's not like a thinking machine with reasoning like faculties. It is violence. It is violence in its natural state. And, um, you know, many people feel like it will only yield when confronted with greater acts of violence. You know, um, they don't have a conscience. Um, and the only time they loosened its grip and was when there is any kind of threat. So, um, you know, and Franz Fanon used to talk about that, you know, um, so like when, when protesters get locked up for being quote unquote aggressive, but it's like, wait, who has already been aggressive, right? Well, when we already have nothing to lose as we see all around the world, protest erupts. When people are not given their basic needs, when they're being robbed blindly right in front of them, when they're being mistreated by the very people that they place their faith in, people become enraged. And, and I honestly feel that we have a right to be. Yeah, it's like you said earlier, it's the ultimate form of gaslighting. Like, oh, why are you so angry? Like, what? What's wrong with you? And, yeah. you know, here we have um, textbooks upon, well, not real textbooks, but we have stories and stories, so many stories, historical, um, that have, that has happened, that has led us here. So it didn't come out of anywhere. And so I want to switch a little bit gears because we started going there. Talk about rage. I know a lot of your work, um, you talk about rage. Can you tell us more how rage and decolonization, how they intersect and how it, um, it manifests in your work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, 
I did work with um, the amazing Ruth King, author of Healing Rage, Women Making Inner Peace Possible. Um, and that was like the foundation for a lot of my work. I was working with uh, one of my spiritual mothers, my teacher, Bola, and she recommended Ruth because they had done a lot of meditation together in Spirit Rock um, out in the West Coast in Marin County. And Bola was like, Jen, as you're digging deep into your ancestral pain, as your dissertation is on intergenerational trauma, as you're looking at our blackness, um, you're going to get really fucking triggered, girl. And Bola is very like, talk like that. <laughs> she's like the most like chillest ever. Like she's like, yeah, in the 60s, all my black brothers and sisters were marching. I was up there meditating, creating peace. That's just who I was. Like, and I'd be like, how? How weren't you fighting? And she's like, I owned who I was. I owned who I was. <laughs> she was like, I was bringing healing in other ways. And so this, this is one of my mentors and I love her so much. And she was just like, the more that you dig into this, the more we need you to look at this rape. This well, she wasn't calling it. She was just like, girl, you're angry. Like, and I was like, I, I, uh, I'm going to share something. I, you know, I was living in Oakland at the time and I loved where I live. And right now it's hella gentrified over there. But um, I was living across the street from Children's Fairyland um, in the Lake Merritt area. Um, and I'm going to, you know, grad school full time in San Francisco, my doctoral program. And I was being followed by somebody in a car. And I did not know. He pulled down the window at some point and was like, hey, hi. And then, like, I just kept walking. And it was kind of dark. And city center at night is pretty... Um, just like empty during the day is bustling but city center in Oakland's pretty empty at night and at the time I was talking you know to my ex-partner my ex-husband and um he was just like who is that what's going on like just you know then like call 911 I'm like no 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 I don't want to call 911 you know and then the car came around again and then I'm just like oh my gosh like I think I'm being followed. And, you know, and all my West Coast friends would be like, oh my God, you had such an East Coast response. That was like hella East Coast of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, I, I snapped, okay? <laughs> like I got onto my block and I thought I was clear of him. Like I even went a whole other way, which probably wasn't a good idea. And I think, you know, trigger warning, because I think a lot of us have gone through this. You know, a lot of individuals out there, whether non-binary male female what have you trans identified like a lot of us have gone through this feeling and we don't know why we're being followed right does somebody want to hurt me kill me assault me like what is this about holler at me like what is going on and um i share this because this was my cracking point of my own internal rage i already had a lot of rage and i inherited from my father from my grandmother from my ancestors my people but feeling as though I was being violated when I didn't really have any family on the West Coast. It was late at night. I'm coming back from an internship working with like individuals that were just incarcerated for sex offenses. I was on high alert, you know? And this person pulled up with their car in a driveway next to my apartment and gets out of the car and starts walking towards me. And I went 
batshit. <laughs> I started cussing. I dropped my stuff. I started walking towards him. I was like, what the F? What the fuck? I was, it was just like, I, like, I was gone. I was, he was afraid of me. He was like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was like, I will fuck you up. Like, I was like, I lost it. Lost it. Like, I, I couldn't take having to, the, the level of fear that I was feeling in that moment, I didn't want it. I didn't want it anymore. Like it wasn't mine. And wouldn't you know, like all these who I believe were women identified people were like, are you okay? Are you okay, sister? What do you need? Like, we got you. Like people started shouting out their windows. Somebody came downstairs with a baseball bat. Like, I mean, I was so held. Like I felt so held, but I couldn't stop screaming even after he left. To the point where a complete stranger who then became my friend, of course, <laughs> like her and her partner both literally were like hugging me. And I was like on the ground, sobbing, screaming and crying. And all I kept saying is we, we have been like, we have been raped and violated way too long. Fuck you. Like that's all I kept saying over and over and over and over. And so for me, Rage had been there all my life, but that moment like put me over an edge and I started getting curious and I started working with Ruth King and I did her retreat up in the Berkeley Hills. I worked it, I kind of paid it off through working for her and cause I couldn't afford that as a student. And um, we had some very intense releases. I learned about the six disguises of rage I learned about how rage is not just like what I experienced that day when I was being followed and I had a traumatic response. That is one way that we know rage, but rage also likes to hide itself. It likes to play hide and go seek, right? Um, because we don't want to be the angry freaking black woman or person mm. or individual. We don't, because it could get us killed, right? Mm, yes. Or it can get our kids taken away from us or it can get us fired or you know it can get us pulled behind a building and hurt in other ways like there's so many things that go through our mind when when we want to release our rage and we know at the end of the day we have so many examples from Emmett Till to Tamir Rice you know to Trayvon Martin to like you know, there's so many so many so many individuals all the, the black trans women that have been murdered all, the, all these years, murdered. You know, there's so much violence and acted towards our bodies that it's just not safe to get that angry. Um, and I think that sometimes our youth are really like negatively scapegoated when they're in gangs or there's a lot of gang violence. And I don't want to minimize that violence, but some of that is about releasing this pent up energy and like projecting and displacing the rage towards our oppressors toward who you can control to someone who looks like you, you know? And it, it is about feeling powerful in a place where you feel like you have no fucking power, hmm. you know? And I can relate to that growing up. I very much was very aggressive like that. And, you know, growing up in the city, it was just like, this is how I had to survive, you know, that I, I'm gonna eat or be eaten. And this is how it's gonna be. Um, so for me, um, now and through Ruth's work, I started realizing that um, grief 
a sort of like a cousin of rage that a lot of people say that grief is underneath the rage. And, and, I, and I think that, there, that there's some truth to that. I know Dr. Maria Braveheart Yellowhorse um, talks a lot about historical trauma and unresolved grief for Native and First Nations individuals. Um, and I think that that's, that's real and that's true. And I think that there's a very particular unique experience, particularly for people of the diaspora, particularly for people of the black diaspora. I think that there's a very unique energy around our bodies and safety and slavery in all very different countries and how that continues to play out psychologically and emotionally. And so, um, the violence that our ancestors have gone through is definitely passed down to us, you know, through social learning, intrapsychically, modeling, social learning theory, epigenetically, you know, like all these ways we have learned that it is not safe to have an intense emotional reaction unless we're in a place of joy, right? If we're at church, okay, that's okay. If we're dancing, that's okay. Excuse me. Um, if we are uh, a stepping right and historically black institution, that's okay. So when we see these displays, they're celebrated. But what about the guttural? What about the messy? What about the icky? The the, the grimy? What do we do with those crevices and places within us that just are not shown light? And I feel like that is where my ancestors bring me. I mean, and me being. I'm not being, because that's not who I am, but being quote unquote trained by the mental health industrial complex <laughs> as a <laughs> clinical psychologist, I can go to pretty dark places with people, but not just with people, with myself. And I truly believe that as healers, therapists, coaches, counselors, social workers, nurses, like if we can't go to some of these darker shadowy, grimier places, but that our anti-Blackness is showing as well, right? But if we can't go to some of these grimy, grimy places in ourselves, slowly, methodically, when we need to, that we're also allowing the Eurocentricity. And I say this with love, not with like, oh, you know, everybody should be doing this because it, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot. And we're not all ready for it all the time. But I think it is important that our anger and rage shows up when it needs to, because we deserve to have boundaries. We deserve to ask for space, to take up space and to have space. We have a right not to be touched or have our hair touched or someone say, oh, your skin is so pretty for being, you know, black girl or, you know, oh, wow, you know, you're really articulate. And where, what school did you go to? How did you learn to be like that? Like, how did you... <laughs> you know, um, we have a right. And so although there's disguises, right, some of the disguises um, that Ruth King talks about are like distraction. Um, oops, sorry about that. Distraction, defiance, uh, domination, depression is <laughs> a way that rage hides. Um, all of these ways are ways that it kind of sneaks. Devotion, devoting ourselves to a cause, to a people, to a belief system, to a relationship. Um, all of these ways are ways that we have managed to kind of put some sort of lid on our deep ancestral rage. 
and um, through my own pain, <laughs> through my own work, uh, through work with other people in very deep pain, um, again, with my students, the peer educators and our retreats, I have begun to befriend rage in a way where my body, my inner child lets me know if my little Jenny is like, uh-uh, not feeling it, I'm mad, I'm pissed. If I feel her stomping, I am falling off on taking care of myself, right? And my body is a barometer to let me know that the rage is coming. If the rage is coming out really easy, something is amiss. There's something that I need to pay attention to. There's some way that there's something is not equitable or fair or someone is being taken advantage of. So I believe that rage is our barometer um, when we are being exploited again. I believe that the rage is there for us to pay attention to and listen to so that we can set better limits and so that we can actually say the word no <laughs> and so that we can begin to care for ourselves and reparent ourselves in ways that our parents and grandparents couldn't because they were so stuck in survival mode. Oh, so much. Yes, yes, and yes. And as you're talking about rage, I, you know, there's so many people like, well, I don't feel angry. Mm -hmm. I just think it's not necessarily about feeling angry. It's that they've been colonized <laughs> to not express those emotions. They've been colonized to, to dissipate it or to push it aside or to put a smile on it. And then usually there's a point where there is a breaking point. Um, and I mean, in the, in the spirituality and personal development coaching world, we see it as people kind of slapping love and light on everything possible, right? It's just love and light. And if you are feeling any emotion outside of love and light, then you are the problem. So it's, it's a way of gaslighting rage. And I feel like a lot of it is about not wanting to, to rectify what has happened not wanting to repair what has happened in terms of colonization. So the way that, you know, if someone doesn't want to repair what has happened, the best way to do that is to just be like, well, you know, to gaslight them and to be like, well, you're angry and your anger is about you. It's not about anything more than that. So it's your problem. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yes, I'm nodding. I'm feeling Yes, all of it. I'm like, we're like, yes, yes, yes. We could just like, just, I mean, just so much. And I guess with all of that, this is one of the questions I usually ask earlier. So with all of this, how do you root deeply? And you can answer that in any way that you want. It can be, you know, rooting deeply. Ancestrally, how do you root to who you are, what is the foundation of you? Yeah. Um, I need more time alone more than ever. <laughs> um, each time it looks different, but some of the ways that I root deeply is by declining um, my particular family line, particularly the women 
are not good at that and have not been good at that, um, at disappointing other people. So believe it or not, there is this little surge of energy and grounded rootedness that happens for me when I appropriately decline something or say that I can't or ask for something I need, even if it's a bit bold or um, I feel like I'm going to be shut down for it. I, 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 I do that. Um, being in my space. Um, I know I said that I was a cancer sun and I'm a <laughs> rising and, you know, it has some interesting planets. Um, but what it comes down to is my, my place, wherever I'm living. And I've, I've lived in the same place for the last like five or six years is my sanctuary. So it kind of has to feel a certain way and be cleaned up and be rather lived in organized, if that makes sense. Um, that's a way that I take care of myself. That is a way that I root deeply is by coming home to my place, being with my cat, my amazing goddess cat, um, lighting um, my spirit candles, speaking to my altar, my altar, um, doing some journey work. Honestly, like my spiritual work, it, it's just who I am. It's not just like, oh, I'm spiritual. It's like, no, I'm a spiritual being, <laughs> you know, this is just, this is just who I am. Um, and it roots me, it grounds me to be back home and be by myself in my space um, with my plant babies and my books and my, <laughs> and my candles and make myself a meal and breathe and decompress and think about what the day has been like and what I would have done differently and what I enjoyed and just remove myself a little bit because I think as an empath, I give a lot. Um, and I don't even realize how much I do. I think it, I assume that it's not enough when it's not at a hundred percent, excuse me. So another thing is, um, being by the water in any way, shape or form, um, I have a privilege of being able to walk, you know, I've used my legs. So I don't live too far from like a river, um, the Hudson River and uh, the Newark port. And so uh, there's a park by me that I'm constantly walking, headphones, uh, music is a large part of my life and definitely has a large impact on my mood. And if I'm feeling really, really deeply sad, and overwhelmed, then I listen to more sad music, believe it or not, <laughs> because I really believe that it's important to allow myself to feel my feelings. Um, at my age, I know that the darkness isn't going to last more than maybe a couple of weeks or days or maybe a couple months, but if it's coming up, I need to feel it in order to heal it. Um, so all of these things are deeply rooting for me. And if I can, you know, if I can do the drive, um, and it's not too windy. Um, I like the cold anyway. I, I can drive to the Jersey Shore and I can drive to the ocean, um, leaving offerings there for some of the Orishas or the ancestors, leaving offerings for myself, um, for my for my family, um, sitting there thinking, breathing. <laughs> you know, these are ways that I ground. Um, and other days, because I honor my rage, other days I need to ground um, by lifting weights you know, and squatting and lifting heavy things over my head. And other days it looks like doing a Zumba class for an hour and getting really sweaty and being in my body and owning my sexuality. Um, Cause Zumba and dance helps me do that. Like music and, you know, little steps, some little salsa, <laughs> <bachata> and like, <laughs> um, 
So I, I know it sounds like a lot, but these are just some of the ways that I've just incorporated into my life that are non-negotiable. Um, and my morning routine, I don't check my phone within the first hour of waking up. And to be honest with you, that keeps me extremely grounded and rooted as well. Um, waking up, listening to whatever meditation or chanting or mantras that I'm on that month because <laughs> I switch depending on what I'm feeling or what I'm wanting or what I'm needing. Um, but, you know, writing, um, asking myself in the morning as soon as I wake up, what is it that I need today? And ancestors, what would you like me to know today? Breathing into that until answers come. Um, and lately I'm doing a letter writing thing that spirits have told me to do for 21 days where I'm writing forgiveness letters to people. I'm not giving it to them, but <laughs> I'm writing letters. Um, so all of this grounds me and deeply roots me into remembering that um, another person is not going to complete me. Uh, a degree is not going to complete me. Um, another 1K of likes is not going to complete me. Your posting and having everybody like something is not. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh, drinking, smoking, like none of it is going to complete me or also remove some of the ache that colonization has left. So each time I have these moments of joy and deeply rooted Jenniferness. I remember that I'm reclaiming my joy. I'm reclaiming myself. I'm reclaiming it, not just for me, but for seven generations before and after me. Mm -hmm. mm, so beautiful. So, so beautiful. So we're at our last couple of questions. So I want to ask you, what does it mean to you to be a visionary woman and, and how that intersects with Black Girls Breathe? Mm. Oh. Okay. So what I want to say is I still struggle with feeling like a visionary, <laughs> you know, um, but I think that's healthy, you know, keeps me grounded. Um, but, you know, there's a resistance in me that wants to say, okay, so what, are, what you're asking is this, right? Because that's how much I struggle with the question, right? Like there, there, there's something in me that's resisting identifying myself in that way. And I think that that's part of where I'm growing into, if that makes any sense. <laughs> um, but I think it is reclaiming vulnerability and space and owning it and taking up space and taking up um, a rightful joy and reclamation, like knowing that there is a vision, that I have a vision, that um, individuals that are queer, indigenous, people of color, that are at or below the poverty line, um, that they should not have to pay for any kind of wellness services. I don't believe that they should have to pay for therapy. I don't believe that they should have to pay for any of that. Um, and, and I have a vision for it and, and I, I want to see it happen where, where the rest of us take care of people who need us, who we need each other. And there are times when I think that we, a lot of us were in those places and we need to make space for that. So, um, in that way, I think that I am reclaiming space 
for Black women. I'm reclaiming um, new ways of doing things for Black women scholars. Um, I have a vision to sort of dismantle the white ivory tower in academia and having them be the resources, you know? So when my students are like, Dr. Mullen, like, you know, because I teach multicultural counseling in groups sometimes, and they're, they're like big fans on my page. At first, I feel guilty, like that that's not the thing to do, that they shouldn't be on decolonizing therapy. How did they find me? And they're like, no, seriously, thank God we've had you. Oh my gosh, I've learned so much from social media. Like our youth are really, really learning. We're learning from each other on Instagram and social media, not from everybody. I mean, not everybody is speaking from a place of truth and, and joy, but many of us are very cautious of who we follow, what we follow, what we ingest energetically. Um, and I noticed that our younger generations, they get that, they get that like, okay, well I have to go to school and I don't believe that they do, but they say like, I have to go to school. I gotta get the degree. I have to finish, boom, then what? then I could do what I really want to do. And that makes me sad. That makes me sad that they feel like they have to go into so much student loan debt the way that I did, because I was a first generation college student and I didn't know any better. And I have hundreds of thousands of dollars of students loan debt so that I could be a doctor and think that I will be treated different, that I'll feel different about myself. And the reality is I don't. <laughs> like the work <laughs> on myself allowed me to feel that. So that is what I hope to do is continue to dismantle these systems that continue to make us feel that we have to do things their white ass way in order to thrive and feel good. Um, I want us to continue to reclaim all of our blackness, all of our bigness, all of our gentleness, all of our vulnerability um, and create space for a lot of fun and pleasure and joy, whatever that looks like for us. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> so much pleasure, so much joy. And I always love asking this question. Mm -hmm. If there's one question that you wish someone asked you, what is that question? And can you answer it? Mm, this is a great question. <laughs> love it. Okay. Give me a moment. Let's see. If there's a question that I wish somebody asked me, hmm, I think, I think a question would be where, you know, like, where do you struggle? You know, like what's, I don't know if that, 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 that yeah, like where do you struggle? Like what's your biggest struggle? Because I think that, that some people are placed on well-meaning like pedestals. And that makes me uncomfortable, you know, like I'm human and I, and I try to be very open and honest about where I struggle. So yes, I would totally answer that question if you wanted me to. <laughs> yes, answer it, yes. Yeah. Um, so I struggle with um, continuing to, like I, I don't listen to any of my podcasts afterwards or any of my keynotes or anything taped of me. Um, I still struggle with deeply accepting and loving myself. Um, I'm a communicator. I can communicate pretty well, I think. But um, my self-critical lens towards myself is still a very big barrier. You know, there's almost like perfectionism 
that eats at me. Um, I also struggle with my own internalized like fat phobia, you know, um, and I also struggle with um, forgiving male identified cisgendered white males in particular for the violence that they have enacted and continue to enact on many black brown bodies. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. Thank you so much for sharing so vulnerably. Yeah. This was such a nourishing conversation. I feel like we can continue talking yeah. more and more. I'm just so grateful for your wisdom and for your work. And I'm just honored that you said yes. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being here today. And thank you, Therese. Thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for um, the light that you bring and the voices that you highlight and the people that you gather together. I deeply appreciate it and I appreciate you. Thank you for listening, beloved. I'm personally inviting you to join our free podcast community over at embodiedblackgirlpodcast.com where you'll receive a beautiful bonus that includes one of my favorite meditations and a powerful affirmation. And if you love this episode, it would mean so much if you shared it and left a written review. It helps folks find us and lets us know what's resonating with you. And of course, be sure to subscribe. Thank you to Beautiful Chorus for our gorgeous theme song, and thank you for being here. I'll talk to you soon. <laughs>